0: Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have a fantastic show for you this evening. Colonel Keith Reeves, B-2 stealth bomber pilot of the United States Air Force, retired, is here with us this evening, and I cannot wait to get him here on the show and share his story, as well as so many amazing things about that aircraft. It is It is probably one of the most beautiful uh, and yet deadly aircraft in the uh, United States Air Force uh, fleet. It's just, it's really something. And uh, his story is wonderful as well. So cannot wait to get him to join us this evening. Now, before we get started, just a few things. We are in the last days of Social Flights Fly to Win Challenge. We are giving away a Lightspeed Delta Zulu headset This beautiful headset right here, we are giving this away on December 1st. So be sure to check that out. All you need to do is get the free social flight mobile app for Apple and Android devices. Just get out there and fly, check in. Even if it's at your local airport, just once you are entered in to that December 1st prize giveaway. Now, uh, in addition to that, if you fly into multiple airports, then you can get more points, track all that, and you can be on our leaderboard and get additional entries into that drawing. In addition, of course, we'll be rolling forward with more uh, fly to win challenges. We always have a challenge going at social flight and giving away some amazing, uh, really great prizes. So uh, anyway, very, very excited about that. Tonight's broadcast is brought to us by Lightspeed. And uh, Lightspeed and that Delta Zulu headset with the canary uh, feature, which is great for carbon monoxide detection. It is really an amazing feature built into that for that. And in addition to that, it has customized uh, EQ feature that like maps what your hearing is and then adjusts it to that. That's called hearing equity, and that is uh, also that comes with that headset. Now. Lightspeed has a special going on right now for people. Of course, you don't win the headset. There is a special going on in December where they are giving away, with purchase of one of those headsets, a special um, setup that actually includes an additional battery. And this very cool charger, this thing is actually a two-piece setup, and it's a charger that actually flips out, has a stand for it, and uh, very, very cool stuff. I've flown with this headset, it's truly wonderful, and encourage all of you to uh, to check that out. Um, now, to tonight's show, I'd like to introduce and begin with uh, Colonel Keith Reeves. He graduated from the United States Air Force Academy in 1992 and began his military flying career at the helm of the legendary B-52 bomber out of Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana. After five years commanding B-52, he was board selected for the B-2 stealth bomber program out of Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri. He flew combat during uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom, instructed in the formal training unit, and served as deputy commander of the 509th Operations Group. Colonel Reeves retired from the Air Force in 2018 and is now a captain on the Boeing 737 for a major airline. In addition to being an accomplished military and commercial pilot, Keith is an avid general aviation pilot and former CFI, flying his Vans RV-8. He has over 3,000 military hours, 2,800 commercial aviation hours, and 930 GA hours. I am thrilled to have him with us tonight. Please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, Colonel Keith Reeves. I'll bring him on the line now. How are you doing? How are you
1: doing? I'm good, Jeff, how are you?
0: Excellent, thank you so, so much for joining us this evening. I uh, I have to tell you, the B-2 bomber is, is one of the most beautiful aircraft to look at. I mean, it is, it's just, gorgeously sculpted um but i want to start with your story so tell me a little bit about um like how how you got started what brought you to the air force and the academy
1: yeah sure well uh first thanks for having me on it's it's good to see you again and i really happy to be here so um i first got my introduction to jets through my my father Uh, he was not a pilot but he was an aviation enthusiast and he was in the army and we were based on the island of Okinawa Japan back in the early 1970s and uh I guess I was about about four years old or so and um at the time the Vietnam War was winding down. They had a lot of airplanes supporting the conflict there. Uh, one of them the SR seventy one. And uh I'm sure you know that plane it's 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 very loud and and uh it would take off right over our house and the House would shake, the windows would rattle, and my dad would would point out what those airplanes were. And also at the time they had um, F4s, they had KC-135s, and he would identify them to me, and I was able to identify them just by the sound that they would make when they flew over overhead. And they'd fly overhead, and I would point them out to my mom, and uh, without seeing them, I'm pretty sure she thought it was some kind of some kind of witchcraft. Um, meet me at four years old, identifying these these airplanes. So that was my first uh, recollection and first introduction to the jets. And so uh, fast forward a, a few years, and we were, or he was assigned to work at the M1 tank Plant in Michigan. And we had base housing on Selfridge Air National Guard Base. So now we're talking uh, late 70s, early 1980s. And uh, at the time they had uh, F4s, A7s, uh, C-130s, the Navy had a, a unit of P3s, and so there are always always jets uh, flying um, uh, overhead. And I would often walk home from from school and walk down the uh, flight line row. And uh, security wasn't what it is today at the time. And I would just I would walk into into hangars and just lean against the wall and uh, stare at mechanics pulling panels off of the thors. And I found it found it fascinating. I, I did and then one day the thunderbirds came to Selfridge and and put on an air show and i'd never seen you know uh, uh, an acrobatic display of any kind much less the thunderbirds and they blew my mind <laughs> they were flying they were flying the t38s at the time and, and and i remember just being a fantastic show so awesome that uh, at the, in the days after the show it was summertime and i got together with some uh, about five of my neighborhood buddies and we put together for our parents we had them come outside and we put together a thunderbird demonstration on our bicycles uh, complete with uh identifying knife edge passes and we had our 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 four ship uh four bike diamond formation it was uh, utterly ridiculous a total clown show but uh, uh but that's how much it inspired me and so um you know i just kind of grew up around jets and fast forward a few years again i was fortunate to get a, an appointment to the Air Force Academy, and, and that's what I got my, how I got my start in, in, in aviation.
0: So let's continue. Uh, you, uh, you're, you're outside the Air Force Base and have uh, unfettered access to some degree compared to what people would have today. <laughs> <That's crazy. laughs> so uh, tell, so uh, tell me a little bit about how that led to then, you know, not everybody gets into the academy. That, that, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, I mean, um,
1: I think it was just the constant exposure to uh, to jets, at least in two of, of of my father's assignments in the Army. And it's kind of ironic he was he was in the Army, but we always seem to end up on on Air Force bases. But um, you know, as a as a uh, you know, I was four years old in Okinawa and ten years old at Selfridge, and and I would just walk around with my uh, head up at the sky all the time, and um, just developed a curiosity not just about uh, what it was like flying them, but also how they worked. I, I scarfed up every book that I could read on, on jets and, 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 and engines and just found it fascinating. And, and my dad, he was um kind of mechanically oriented as well, uh, was always tinkering on cars and fixing things. And so I think uh, uh, that mechanical nature uh, of his mind also kind of bled over to me a little bit and I just wanted to understand how uh, how aircraft worked and how they flew.
0: Wow. Um, and so what does it take to get into the academy what was, what was your your journey to that
1: yeah so um shouldn't it shouldn't be a surprise that it helps to have a good good grades a, a, no no uh one needs to be perfect uh, my grades certainly weren't but you know they're they're okay um I, I do when i if i mentor people that are interested in the academy i i say that the the academy is more looking for someone who is well-rounded as opposed to um to perfect in any one area i mean they're not going to turn the nose up as someone who's a valedictorian but that's not what they're necessarily looking for they want someone that is is uh, you know strong in academics but not necessarily a 4.0 someone who has uh, an, an aptitude for athletics um but you know you don't have to be a, a a star athlete and and certainly someone who has displayed leadership potential um but uh you know it's not necessary that you are president of your student council or whatever but but you need to have at least a representation of all of those all those areas and and um you know i, I guess i i had those things and then at some point you need to to be nominated by by a um uh, uh either a congressman or senator or or if you're uh a, a, a son or daughter of a veteran you have the opportunity to apply to um to the president um hmm. for, for a nomination which is how i received mine i i know that uh, at the time it was president reagan he didn't actually read my application as of course his staff did but uh but I did get a a presidential nomination but most people get a um uh you know a a nomination from the congressman or from their senator and then if you get a nomination those packages go forward to the academy selection board and and they select the uh, uh the personnel that they are interested in
0: wow what what was your experience going going through the uh the academy like you know, I,
1: I had, a, I wouldn't say a, a good time, but it was where I wanted to be. I mean, it certainly is a, is a challenge if, uh, you know, uh, you fell apart getting yelled at. Probably not the best place for, uh, for, for you, but um, it's a, uh, it's quite an experience as far as filling up every minute of, of every day with activities, if not academics. And then you're doing some type of activity or athletics, obviously marching is a big piece lots of programs, especially uh, aviation-related, a large soaring program, um, parachuting, just to name a few, Uh, lots of opportunities to exercise leadership. And this this goes on for all four years. Of course, the first year as a freshman is very regimented, very few freedoms. And, um, you know, they do what they can to strip down personal identity not in my opinion, not in a, a, a malicious way, but in in a way that that tries to ingrain that hey the the the, the unit, the cadet wing or the um uh, your class is is more important than your individual needs. Hmm. And um, you know it, it's a uh, it, it's it's a challenge, but not anything not any one thing is too much of a challenge for someone to be able to overcome. It's it's more of a mental game. Just try to load you up with stress and and see how you how you perform.
0: So what was your first uh, assignment after you, after you graduated?
1: Yeah. So, um, I graduated in 1992. Of course that was immediately after the Gulf War. And if you remember back then the first Gulf War, and there was a large military drawdown. And so the air force found itself in a situation where there were a lot more pilots than, than airplanes. And so they paused um, accessions to pilot training for, for, for a while and I had to to wait uh, a few years and so I was sent to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and that is a base where a lot of aircraft and systems development is is done and I I studied engineering at the at the academy and so I was assigned to uh at the time was called a system program office it might be called the same now I'm not sure but but um or, or SPO system program office so the SPO I was assigned to develop sensors for reconnaissance airplanes, and specifically, I worked on on uh, systems for the, for the U-2. And um, so, these are systems that uh, uh, normally or typically, I my programs were electro-optical sensors. But um, the the SPO also worked on uh, radar for the U-2 as well as data links as well. And so, um, so that's what I did for about two and a half years. And after that. Um, is when I went to pilot training in 1995.
0: Wow. And and what was the first aircraft, or what were the aircraft that you got to fly in your, in your pilot training? Yeah, so at the time,
1: well, let me back up a little bit. So everyone going to pilot training at the Academy does a screening program, which at the time was was in the uh, airplane, the, the T-41, which is just a Cessna 172 with a, a much more powerful engine. It's got a six-cylinder, uh, Fuel-injected engine that um, uh, that you fly for it's like a 13 ride program for for screening to you know just to identify those that might have trouble before they get into jets or that are a lot more expensive. And so at pilot training we flew the arrived through the T-37 and the T-38. The T-37 is, is uh, long since been retired, but it was a a twin-engine jet subsonic. Um, pretty small, made by Cessna back in the 1950s, but it's uh, it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun to fly. And then that program, or that airplane, I we flew for about six months, and then transitioned to the um, to the uh, right transition to the T-38. So you start out in the T-37, and then from that point, after you complete that program, you track select, and you have four options. One was the um, t T1, which is a uh, a uh, beast jet, um, I think it's the name of the civilian version, but it's basically a, a, a militarized business jet, and that's the airplane that you go to if you're going to fly uh, tanker, transport types of airplanes. Or you might go to, at the time, we I think we sent pilots going to the helicopter or rotary wing to a Fort, Fort Rucker to train with the Army on the UH-1, so that's two options. The third option was uh, pilots going to fly turboprops, particularly the C-130 would go and fly with the Navy on the T-44. I, I think down in Corpus Christi, but I'm not positive about that. And then those going to, to combat aircraft, either fighters or bombers, would train the T-38, uh, which is what I did um, for about, um, about another five months in the T-38. Tell me about flying the T-38. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a really fun plane. And, and um, uh, some people uh, might characterize it as, 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 as a, a very fast airplane. Um, I, characterize it as a plane that flies slow, very poorly, uh, <laughs> as opposed to saying it's fast, but it's a uh, it's a uh, twin engine uh, supersonic airplane. Now that's kind of a, uh, we don't fly supersonic. Uh, there's one flight in the entire syllabus of this that we fly supersonic and it's just uh, uh show you that, you know, the plane flies. <laughs> Just to burn fuel. Laws of physics, uh, you know, exist on the other side of the sound barrier as they do on the subsonic side, but um, we really don't fly uh, at that that speed. But it's a uh, it's a lot of fun. It, it can be a challenge to, to 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 land, and in fact, there are quite a few accidents um, back in the uh, late 60s and, and 70s. For the most part, uh, uh, we uh, I say we the Air Force improved the training program so that those accidents really. Uh, were reduced um, into the uh, the 80s and, and 90s but it's still a plane that you can't can't relax on uh, especially at slow speeds in the traffic pattern below about 300 knots the plane really um, uh, does not like to fly at slow speeds and obviously you have to uh, fly well below that in order to land and, and uh one thing you have to get used to is is when you're in the traffic pattern the plane is on the edge of a stall the entire time and you you're constantly feeling buffet when you are any time in the traffic pattern, all the way down on downwind and through the base turn and, and on final, the plane is just shaking and, and buffeting like- Really? Uh, as, as, oh yeah, yeah, it, it's, um, it, it's, it's that close that you feel it buffeting the entire tire. You just get used to it. Wow. And um, at some that. point, they, um, the Air Force installed angle of attack indexers, which uh, is it's, it's, uh, pr- pretty brilliant, but it's a series of lights that tells you what your angle of attack is. Either it's it's on uh, profile, in other words, the angle of attack where you should be, or yeah. it's too shallow, or or what you don't want to see is it's too high. And I, I don't have the numbers to back it up, but I think that that really helped to reduce the number of accidents and and it um, made it a lot safer and a little bit easier um, to just fly that angle of attack indexer. It's a we call it the green donut because it's literally a green circle. And when that lights up, you know you're at a safe angle of attack on the traffic pattern.
0: That's so that's so cool. I I, I mean, uh, we've got uh, one from Alpha Systems, uh, their uh, angle of attack that in the general aviation world. So I I know I've, I've talked to Mark Gorin, who developed that, what that looks like. And it's very, very cool that that, that made all the difference, of course, to being able to fly uh, the T-38, which I, I I never knew that about what it was like to fly in the pattern. You're getting buffeted around. So. Your first real deployment then, uh, as I understand it, is in the amazing, legendary B-52. What is that like? Before we get to the B-2, its predecessor that will probably outlive it. The B-52, is is, that's a beast.
1: Yeah, it's a neat plane, obviously very iconic. It's it's the symbol of a a lot of things. Um, Some of them bad, I think they're mostly good. Uh, it's very unique shape, you can identify it even from miles and miles away. But, um, I will say it's probably the most challenging plane I've, I've, I've flown as far as a as far as yoke, yoke and rudder. It's a big lumbering beast, needs a lot of uh yoke forces to, to, to whip it around the traffic pattern and to, to airy fuel. Obviously, um, uh, eight engines, all analog gauges, so there's something like uh uh 32 gauges that you have to monitor in, in flight and and you know it's not as difficult as it sounds you look for trends but you, you you do have to uh to monitor them all this is there's there's no i-cast system there's no um uh automatic uh monitoring system on the on the engines you gotta uh monitor it all yourself and then flying it it's uh yeah it's um uh, i remember in the in the summertime just sweating profusely trying to uh um Uh, practice touch and goes just because of the control forces and and it's never it's never just stable it it never at least in roll the the plane is always lumbering from left to right and so you're constantly putting large control inputs into the yoke to keep it um on your vector to keep it going where you want it to go and so uh you know probably i feel like i probably lost a pound or two every time i'd fly it in the summertime in in louisiana of course course the air conditioner wasn't very good either
0: that's crazy, and and I I understand landing on it is pretty unique as well. Yeah, so the landing
1: gear, if if um, your viewers are able to look at it on a on a stock photo, it doesn't have a traditional uh, nose gear. In fact, the 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 front gear are the exact same as the the rear gear, and uh, the reason is just because the the airplane lands at such a shallow attitude it's really difficult to keep from hitting that nose gear first. I mean you don't want to but if it does it's not dangerous. I mean the plane um, will bounce in and and there's a threat of maybe getting into a, a you know a PIO a pilot induced oscillation but um but the plane can't land even hitting the nose gear first and um so that's unique, and then also the plane has has outrigger landing gear, and so you can't land a lean, a wing low method like like you do in some some uh, GA airplanes and even some commercial airplanes. You have to land flat, and because of that, if there's a crosswind, um, you still have to land flat. And so Boeing had the great idea of uh, well, let's just pivot the landing gear so that if you're if you're uh, uh, if your nose is facing say five degrees. Uh, to the right, then we pivot all four main landing gear five degrees to the left, and so that you land in a crab and you slow down in a crab. And and then when we get down to taxi speed, we'll just zero the crab out, and 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 taxi off the runway like that. And the first time you see it, it, it looks really, really strange. It, it's it's just not natural to see an airplane land in a in a crab and then continue to taxi down the runway in a crab.
0: I I. I always thought of that as kind of like when things like a Cessna 195 or other aircraft had had gear that would kind of adjust but but you've said that that it's manually controlled yeah we control it in the cockpit that's
1: correct it, it doesn't happen automatically
0: wow and so you literally like i guess have an indication to know exactly which way i yeah. mean how do you even get it exactly right
1: yeah there there's an indicator it's got a little needle that points to the number of degrees so we, we, we you know it's a simple chart across one landing chart but we look at our our speed and the winds and it tells you okay you need four degrees of, of right gear crab and then we reach down and dial in four degrees and and then in theory if the winds don't change um you know the uh, the landing gear will land uh straight down the down the runway I mean you know uh it's, the winds do change and so you will get a little tire scrub, but it's nothing nothing too
0: uh, uh, significant. Wow, that must be very, very cool. Uh, I want to show, before we move on to the B2 itself, of course, I want to show a couple pictures uh, that (laughs) that you sent. This is awesome, (laughs) I love this picture. What is this from?
1: (laughs) Well, I think it's pretty obvious from the close, that's from the very early 1970s. That's about uh, 72 or 73, and I I sent that to you just uh, to, illustrate the time frame where I started getting interested in jets. And now that's me sporting the, uh, the white pants. It's not easy. Not anyone can wear uh, white pants. I, I <laughs> well. You pulled uh, it off really but well, was, <laughs> but that was, uh, uh, Okinawa, Japan on the, on the, um, Kadeen air base. And my oh, dad wow. he was a major at the time, major
0: Reeves, uh, next to me. That is so cool. And then of course, from your, the academy?
1: Yes, would have been um, late 91 or early 92. So that's the T 37. My hero shot standing next to it and uh, spent about five months training in this airplane. And when you, the syllabus in this airplane, um, you did everything. I mean, you started out, we, we call it contact, but that's basically just basic flying skills. Lot of landings. I mean, just tons and tons of landings. Of course, traffic pattern work, but also uh, uh, a full aerobatic um, uh, demonstration was required. Uh, you, you're not required to be proficient. Uh, you know, we're never going to, you know, be on the level of a professional aerobatic performer. But but you know, you did have to be able to uh, at least uh, um, have confidence in the airplane and perform a recognizable uh, aerobatic routine. And then you also do. Um, uh, formation training in this, as well as uh, low-level training and uh, instrument training, of course, and then basic uh, VFR navigation as well.
0: And that's the the plane that ma- that basically makes everybody deaf? <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, this nickname or unofficial nickname is the, the Tweet because the engines, this airplane is obviously very old, and, and these engines were not the traditional axial flow jets like most jets are, if not all jets are today. These Engines were centrifugal flow. It had a centrifugal compressor, just like you might see in a in a turbocharger. And the RPM of these engines, a typical RPM, which was much higher. Actually, I, I don't quote me that. I don't know if it's higher, but it was definitely louder, a much louder uh, engine. I mean, very very loud and very high pitched, high pitched squeal. Yeah,
0: crazy. And then just a couple more here. Yeah, my parents.
1: Excuse me. I, uh, included that picture uh, just because uh, uh, I don't know of many pilots that are able to complete their journey uh, without a lot of support from your parents. because It's not not easy, and, and if you go the civilian route, it's certainly not cheap. But um, this was later on in my career when I was at Whiteman Air Force Base flying the B-2, and we had a, a, a fleet of T-38s, and I can talk about why later on, but but we were authorized to do some cross-country navigation training and so I every now and then I would go out and and I'd say hi to my say hi to my
0: parents that's that's awesome
1: so this is my family and that t38 behind me was my I, I flew that on my last flight in the air Force so this would have been uh, spring or summer of 2014 my last flight and and in the Air Force, Uh, it's a tradition they will do at least most units will try to to give a little celebration when it's the last time flying an airplane and so for me you can see a little red carpet it's not really a carpet but it's paying to be like a red carpet and and, uh uh, your crew chief will taxi you up there and then and then for me and in most pilots that i that i know um there'll be a fire truck there and then your family gets to hose you down um (laughs) with a with a fire hose and by the way this is not this is not a garden variety fire hose this is a a full-fledged, you know, <laughs> massive blast of of uh, inferno um, snuffing fire hose, and then uh, also, I agree you. You can see a bottle of champagne there, and um, and that was a cold, cold day if I remember correctly. It was a very, very cold day.
0: <laughs> so that that's that's wonderful. Well, let's start talking about the the b2 because of course that is the monster the the aircraft that everybody's here um, you you were pretty close your schedule seems to be pretty close to the debut of the b2 itself um, so the operationally to the um, the b2 first
1: arrived at White Air Force Base in the in, it was definitely the early 90s i want to say 1993 i'm not positive mm-hmm. about that year and so it was flying a, a good probably eight years before i got to whiteman air force base which was was um two, 2001 and so it wasn't quite there for the debut um, it had been flying for a while and in fact i think that most of the aircraft had been built by the time that i got there
0: well, maybe deployment, I guess, is a better word uh, to use. I see. I see what you're saying, yeah. The first um, combat
1: use of the B two was in over over Kosovo in 1998, and so I got there about three years after this first mm-hmm. first combat deployment.
0: What tell tell, tell tell us a little bit about the aircraft itself? Yeah. Um,
1: happy it to Of uh, before I forget, though, I want to point out. So this, I'm actually flying this airplane right here. This is on my my initial check ride in the training squadron and i'm right over at the base we had a an area fueling track and what we call a a a moa or a military operations area and there's one right over whiteman air force base and this is my initial check ride and i i uh uh in contact i saw some some flashes from the from the um the boom the boomer pod where the where the uh the boom operator sits in the kc 135 and i said so we we can talk to each other there's a uh, uh an interphone line that goes through the boom and so we can talk without having to use the radio and said hey can you can you send me those those pictures and and uh, i passed him my email address and uh, he, he took very good pictures i got quite a quite a few but um anyway about the airplane so so there are a number of things that that make it unique and allow it to do uh what it can do and and first and foremost is is uh, the shape and you can see um by the uh Uh, the shape there that if you can imagine yourself being a radar emitter just about anywhere you can see how the energy is going to really try to be reflected everywhere except directly back at the emitter and one thing that uh, you may notice is that you will never find a right angle or a 90 degree angle anywhere on the airplane because 90 degree angles are Severe reflectors of radar energy, and so the plane does not have any 90-degree angles of any kind, at least when when the uh, the gear is up and the weapons bay doors are closed and and all that stuff. And so uh, the shape, 90-degree angles, and then um, additionally, you'll see that there's nothing that's really radar reflecting that is not embedded. So uh, uh, very large reflector of radar energy are the compressors on the engine. And and you can't see them because they are completely submerged inside the airplane. So the air has to go through a a kind of a circuitous route to get to the compressors. And same thing on the exhaust, after it leaves the turbine, it goes through somewhat of a circuitous route to, uh, uh, to, to, to leave the airplane so that any any radar behind the airplane isn't going to be able to get a reflection off of the turbines. And there is a little bit of a thrust loss because of that um, uh, of a few thousand pounds. But um, but obviously it's necessary to, uh, to achieve the, the primary mission of the airplane. And so uh, shape, 90 degree angles, embedded compressors. Also you'll see that there's nothing that extends, nothing that it protrudes. All accessories, antennas, lights, uh, air vents any kind of door all of those things are conformal they they are completely flush with the uh, with the skin of the airplane obviously wow. that helps a, to uh, to uh, significantly reduce the rear cross section as well and then even the the flight controls you can see the flight controls deflected slightly on the we call those elevons because it's a combination of uh, aileron and, and elevator uh, you can see the elevons deflect slightly but right now that airplane that stock photo is not in in what we call penetration mode or, or stealth mode, uh, unofficially, when we go into stealth mode, those flight controls completely streamline because any deflection of control service is also a reflector of radar energy, and so those flight controls completely streamlined with the um, with the uh, with the airframe, and and um, they basically
0: don't don't move. So how do you maintain directional control with nothing vertical and having control surfaces that don't move.
1: Yeah, so so it's um uh a pretty unique it so the, the primary um uh parameter that you need is is uh that that deflects control surfaces is is a roll and yaw there's there's very little movement for pitch and so um pitch occurs normally but for roll and yaw when we're in stealth mode we modulate engine thrust to turn the airplane and so typically say you want to turn to the left we will reduce rpm on the left the two left engines about three percent and increase rpm on the two right engines about three percent and the airplane will enter a nice uh nice shallow bank now you're not gonna you're not gonna you know roll up to 30 degrees doing that it's just not that significant of a thrust change but for very shallow banks, which is what we want to do, that's all you need to do in order to turn the airplane.
0: And what about pitch? How is pitch just? Yeah, I mean, pitch, not... pitch is
1: still controlled normally, but the flight control deflection for pitch is is very small. It's 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 minimal. Wow,
0: that's that is really uh, that's really something, and it is it is an amazing shape. That that's that's for sure. Um, before, uh, before we go to the cockpit, let's talk a little bit about, uh, then obviously it's got a mission Tell, tell what it, tell us about the mission, uh, of the B2 itself.
1: Yeah. So, so officially the mission is strategic attack, but where the B2 is going to be used is for high value targets in heavily defended areas. If it's not a high value target, or if it's not a heavily defended area, there are other planes that can do it for a lot, uh, Less money, less effort, and, and maybe even do it do it better. But but a high value target in a heavily defended area is is where the B two is gonna gonna earn its money. So that's gonna be targets like command and control facilities, uh, communications nodes, underground bunkers, maybe uh, very uh, very critical air defense sites that if that site was destroyed might allow other Non-stealthy or less stealthy airplanes to uh, to follow in behind, uh, so those those types
0: of targets. And what types of uh, armaments, what time uh, are on board?
1: Yeah, so the uh, the bread and butter weapon for the B two is the the JDAM that that stands for a Joint the tech Munition. Officially, it's called the uh, the GBU thirty one, and I'm I'm pretty sure that that is a JDAM. In fact, I know it that's a JDAM that you see. Um, I think it is, it's hard to tell, but I think that's a JDAM um, being released right there out of the weapons, bay. although I've never seen that many fall at one time, so I'm not sure what they were doing. But um, that's the, a typical weapon. It's a 2,000-pound class weapon that is precision guided via INS and GPS. It's, it's very good. It's very accurate. It's been uh, continuously updated and upgraded over the years, um, but that's kind of the, uh, our, our standard weapon. But it also can carry the 500-pound version of that same weapon, which is the GBU-38. And so the 2,000-pound, the GBU-31, the B-2 carries can carry 16 of those on on two rotary launchers. They're kind of hard to tell in this picture, but they're two weapons bays side-by-side. One rotary launcher at each bay, eight eight weapons, eight GBU-31s on each rotary launcher for a total of 16. The 500-pound version, we can carry 80 of those in the weapons bay. We have 80. to remove the rotary 80. We have to re- remove the rotary launcher and we put a uh, what's called a, uh, a a smart bomb rack assembly or, or S-Braw and that can carry 80 80 weapons. That's a lot of iron um, to precisely put on an individually targeted aim point uh, over bad guy land. That's a lot of iron. Um, to target precisely.
0: Even the 16 is, that's, that's amazing. And this obviously looks like it's dropping most of the 16. Yeah.
1: Um, and and pretty- then in addition to those weapons, um, we do carry uh, penetrating weapons, weapons that have a very heavy hardened case so that it can go through uh, many feet of, of cement or stone. Think um think a cave complex or a, or an underground bunker. Uh, some of those weapons are, um, Uh, The GBU-28, which is about a 5,000-pound class weapon, but also um, a weapon called the, uh, uh, this was uh, in the the media a lot uh, uh, back when I was flying the airplane, but uh, uh, a weapon called the Massive Ordnance Penetrator, the GBU-57, it's a 30,000-pound weapon and uh, and a very hardened, I mean extremely hardened uh, casing, I I guess steel, I'm not sure what it's made out of, but um, Obviously, uh, the purpose there is very, very deep penetration into very hardened targets, and the plane can carry uh, two, one, one in each bay. Uh, 30, wow,
0: two thirty thousand pound bombs. Yeah, it's it's it takes up the entire weapons bay. It's it's. Uh, it's I can't uh, I can't imagine job. seeing loading of a thirty thousand pound. <laughs>
1: It, it's a, a little bit of art, a little bit of science. There are the weapons loaders at Weapon are the best, uh, I think, and uh, they they're, they 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 load, train to load a very wide variety of weapons, and and um, I can't explain how how they do it, but it's a it's a tight fit. I've, I've I've seen it loaded in there; it's a tight fit.
0: Yeah, and you need a lift of some kind that can hold thirty thousand pounds plus.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I can't I I can't explain how it's done. I wish I, I could give you more details on that.
0: That's, um, uh, that, that and now how do, how do, just out of curiosity, like with, you go into situations where you have things like denied GPS coverage and things like that. How do, how do weapons like this get used in those situations? Yeah, th- we, we have a very good system. Um,
1: the, uh, we have a way of, of uh it's, it's an anti-jam system and uh, we can protect the signals the GPS signals. Also the, the antenna are mounted in places that obviously the jammer is always going to be on the ground. 100% of the time the jammer is going to be on the ground. And so the antennas can be mounted in places that are,
0: that are shielded from jamming coming from the ground. So it's mm-hmm. not, uh, not too much of a concern. Got it. That makes sense. So I want to take people into the, the cockpit a little bit. And uh, this, so this is the, it's a two two person uh, aircraft.
1: Yes, uh, two two pilots. And um, before I forget, the the configuration of the pilots in the B two is 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 unique. Uh, I don't know of any airplane that's like it. So normally, the the aircraft commander sits on the left side, and the the what do you want to call it the uh, uh, co pilot, for lack of a better term, is is on the right side. And in the B two, it's 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 reversed. The aircraft commander sits on the right side but that person is not called the aircraft commander that person is called the mission commander and and actually doesn't doesn't fly is it, or the, the intent is not to fly
0: hmm. The
1: left seat pilot is the the um the non-aircraft commander and that person is called a pilot and that person's mission is to fly the airplane that person flies and does all the talk on the radio and the intent is so that in an operational Environment on an operational mission, the mission commander in the right seat can focus on mission-related things: the, the weapons, the targets, the navigation system, the radar, and maybe talking to other assets that might be out there that we need to coordinate with. And uh, so the so so the right seat pilot is called the mission commander, and the left seat pilot is called is called the pilot. And the the mission commander is also the aircraft commander and responsible for the entire accomplishment of the mission it's just kind of uh, kind of unique that way
0: is it seniority based to some degree well so
1: so the configuration of piles that I just described that's that's a theoretical configuration which is how we would operate on an actual combat mission on a training mission which obviously almost all the missions that we do are just for training um, we, we switch off we you know the, each pilot will fly about half the flight and each pilot will get about half the uh, weapons Act the training activity and so because you can do either job from either seat oh but, so you don't uh, switch seats when you change. No, role no 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 we don't switch seats. you can do either job for me to seat but that is the way that the the um uh that's our concept of operations for operational missions combat missions is that the mission commander uh, does everything mission related from the right seat and the pilot sits in the left seat and just flies wow um Tell
0: us a little bit about what we see here.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, obviously, uh, everything on this, this is a stock photo. It's, it's pretty, pretty, um, uh, pretty popular. Pretty scrubbed. uh, (laughs) It's very scrubbed. So every screen up there is basically a systems screen. I, and, um, my, uh, I can't see it very well, but, uh, it looks like, um, uh, one screen is a hydraulic system. One screen is the, uh, uh, the fuel system. Obviously, on the left side, you can see the uh, the, the attitude directional indicator, and um, I, I just uh, one side is the engine display. But I, I'm talking about the the, the four basic multifunctional yeah. display units, and so so they're all very generic screens. There are other screens, of course, that that, that we can call it that that uh, cannot be shown in a in a stock photo. But right. um, basically those MDUs or multifunctional display units are, they're all interchangeable. We can bring up any screen on, on to um, uh, uh, any location that we want to um, typically just for standardization, we, we tend to fly um, more or less the same so that you, you, know, you can fly with any pilot and, and, and uh, um, uh, you know, you know what to expect, but uh, uh, that's what those, those uh, MDUs are for. You can bring up any display that you want to. And then in the very center is the, the, uh, uh, the engine uh, stack, just basic engine instruments uh, that you will see in any jet, you know, uh, RPM, oil pressure, that kind of thing. Now on the uh, the center console, you can see the throttles. There are actually two sets of throttles. What I love about this cockpit is that you don't have to share throttles. I'm very possessive when I fly, I like my <laughs> stuff, my control set. And so you can see the, throttle, the throttles for the right, seat pilot and then the left seat pilot his or her throttles are well off to the left side so you can't see them oh in this
0: picture. I was gonna ask about that cuz you said the pilots yeah. in the left I thought do you have to reach or reach all the way over there yeah. like that
1: yeah yeah you just can't can't see them. and then the plane as you can also see has a has a stick a standard uh, stick grip that most most uh, uh, jets have it's it's a um, uh, nice flying with the with the stick the plane is very easy to fly, very responsive. Uh, Jeff, I could take you in the simulator, you'd be flying like a pro in, in about five <laughs> minutes. It, it's very, very docile, very easy to fly. Um, but let me uh, get a hand of myself. So um, you can see you have a, uh, it's called a, a data entry panel, just a basically a keyboard just to the right of where the knee would be on the left seat pilot. And then the uh, the mission commander also has one, but again, it's just off of the picture on the right side of the data entry panel. They are in, they're not in the exact, the the cockpit is not a mirror image of each other. It generally has the same controls for the most part, but some controls on these side panels are unique to either side. Mm -hmm. Um, Like the the mission commander has um, some communications controls and the pilot has some controls um, for like the um, uh, bleed air system and engine start and that kind of thing, if I remember correctly. That that are necessarily mirror images, but the main controls that you need to fly the airplane um, are are the same on both sides.
0: Wow. tell me about the mission itself, because you well, it means tell me about your deployment uh, when when you actually went into combat as part of um, uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom. Yeah, so
1: so it. Uh, uh, Ironic thing about my deployment is that it actually wasn't a deployment. I actually flew combat right from my, my home base in the Whiteman Air Force Base. It was a 36-hour wow. flight. Now, airplanes did deploy. There were a number of airplanes that did deploy forward to the uh, British Indian Ocean Territories, uh, Diego Garcia, it's an uh, island in the Indian Ocean. And uh, there, there are advantages and disadvantages of, of operating at a Whiteman or operating forward. advantages operating forward is that it's a much shorter transit time and so less air fueling support obviously uh, less fatigue for the for the air crew but tactically you have more flexibility because you can wait longer to take off before receiving your targets and so you can make um, large changes to your to your targets or you can get your targets later before having to take off you take off at alignment if you're going to have your targets on the ground you need them um almost two days before before you you uh uh take off uh, so you at least,
0: those don't get updated in flight they, i mean you're talking about a 36 can, hour flight
1: yeah we have the, you know we do have the ability to receive targets in flight and we do that quite a bit but there's a little bit more um you know a small amount of risk there i mean it's something yeah. we train we, we're very good at it but you know there's an element of of, of uh of, of risk if you're punching targets in your yourself as opposed to receiving it on the ground where you can
0: just directly load it up in the uh, into the airplane. Uh, I and don't so um, most but people yeah. realize like a 30 tell me a, you said a 36 hour mission That's correct. Uh, my my mission
1: from Wyman Air Force Base uh, to Baghdad the targets were in Baghdad and back was was just over 36 hours. And um, if, if an airliner did that, it would be a little bit less time because we have what's called a timing, timing trombones built into our flight plan. And it, it looks just like it sounds. It's a little bit of a trombone. the reason is because um, if, we, if we're a little bit late or let's say the winds aren't as we planned, we have very limited ability to make up time just by flying faster. We're already flying very close to our top speed. And so, we plan to get there early, and then if everything goes as planned, we shorten our trombone. And so, that's how we control timing going to Baghdad. because you, you, know, we're meeting at tankers at a point in the sky on, on a, at a certain time. And so, we can't just show up an hour late, or we're not going to get our gas, or an hour early, we're not going to get our gas. The tankers expect us to be there on time, and we expect the tankers to be there on time. And so, so we have to control our timing by other ways than, than just pushing up the throttler or pulling it back. And so if an airliner were gonna fly to Baghdad and back, um, it would be a little bit less than 36 hours. Then also we were spending some time in country itself, um, uh, prosecuting our, our, our targets. But yeah, our, 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 my mission was, was 36 hours and that was pretty typical for all the flights that flew out of, out of a Whiteman Air Force Base.
0: How do you handle that? Are you sitting in the seat for 36 hours straight? No, we, obviously we need a rest at some point.
1: And, um, there is just enough space behind the ejection seats to set up a standard green army issue cot. And, and that's what we would, we would do. And then during the flight, when there is not much going on, so between every fuelings, one pilot or the other would, would get off and and rest. Um, that sounds better in theory and reality. I, I don't remember sleeping a whole lot on my, on the way over there. I, I think I maybe slept a total of about 90 minutes for the first half of the fly. So the first 18 hours. And then I do remember coming cause you know, you're, you're a you're pumped up, you're, your are adrenaline is going. And then after leaving the threat area, after we struck our targets and we're heading home now, I remember all the adrenaline leaving and, and now just a tidal wave of fatigue. Uh, washing over me and and that was the biggest threat and biggest struggle was trying to stay alert and awake uh when, when I had to be especially for the for the area feelings for the remaining 15 hours going back westbound across the uh uh the atlantic
0: do you how, how do you train for for that type of I mean, situation obviously they don't you, you could be deployed with very little notice i would imagine and then also You've got this idea of how do you stay alert and for 36 hours, or even the first, you know, the first 18 of it, and, um, and and then all of a sudden you have to be at the absolute top of your game. Yeah, that's a great question, and it is a skill that we do train for.
1: Uh, first of all, the 509th Bomb Wing has an aerospace physiologist that person does nothing except advise aircrew on how to stay at their, their peak level of performance on long duration flights. Um, everything from, from diet, proper diet, to, uh, to uh, how to manage your rest cycle with the other pilot's rest cycle so that you're not both getting tired at the same time and that at least someone is alert all the time. And then of course, for, for critical times like um, prosecuting targets and air fueling, you have to both be alert. And and this person does nothing but advise the the pilots on how to how to manage that. Uh, but on top of that, we train for long duration missions periodically. And um, you know, it's not nearly as 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 much as would be nice for training. But it, uh, I remember flying a long duration. I said long duration, so any flight over about twenty four hours, we uh, we call long duration. And we would do that about once a once a year. Um, and and sometimes we don't even leave the country. We just fly um you know see the four corners of the country or you know fly to uh um ping pong off the borders and go to you know florida maine texas north dakota california washington just fly around and we do you know uh, training activities every feeling of course we have to do that And, and we do simulated weapon releases we fly for 24 hours then we land and we um we try to get everybody uh, a long duration flight, of, you know, about once a year or so, just to stay in the practice of it, because it is a is a perishable skill, and it's something that you have to practice at to stay good at. Yeah, you know, practice your your um, uh, you know, how you're going to rest and your in your diet and and little techniques that you need to do to stay alert in the cockpit.
0: Have you found that that ha- helps the rest of your life, and even now in the uh, in in kind of commercial airline world? <laughs>
1: Um maybe a little bit. Uh but I you know I'm on the 737 And so uh you know we don't fly more than about 7 hours, thank god, cuz I I can't at my age I I can't do that anymore.
0: <laughs> you you're done doing that kind of thing? I'm yeah, I can't. What's the what's the future what do you see as the future of the B2 and and how it works in the in in the kind of the bigger scheme of things?
1: Yeah, so it's already um set for for sundown. Um current plans have the airplane retiring about 2030 ish i mean they're not going to retire them all at one time but they'll they'll be phased out over a period of a, of a of a few years and they will be replaced by the b21 a fantastic airplane that uh that's also being by north of grumman and that will be coming online um i, I think in the next in the next few years i know the first flight of the b21 raider occurred just uh just a um a few days ago right before thanksgiving and or right around thanksgiving and uh, those airplanes are are going to be coming online and gradually replace not just the B2, but the B1 as, as well. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I don't know exactly what uh, some of the specifics of the plans for the B2 are, but I imagine that they're going to slowly stop upgrading it. And and around the um, 2030 timeframe, plus or minus a year or two, they'll start retiring it.
0: What when when you talk about a complete mission as to what you've done, uh, you you talk obviously a lot about refueling. That's a big part of support. What else, like when you were on on your uh, combat mission, what else is happening in the whole kind of cadre of aircraft that allow you to perform your mission?
1: Yeah, so there's a a, a lot going on, um, both uh, even pre takeoff and then and then pre strike. and and. Um, it, it starts way back with, with in, in, in intelligence and we have a great intelligence community intel officers and intel uh, journeymen uh, at White Air Force Base so very large intelligent of support and 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 um, they uh, do a lot of very hard work preparing the mission and the targets and and the aircrew um and able to accomplish their mission and then um uh, obviously we need a lot of air refueling support. My my one flight uh, involved five air fuelings, two pre-strike and three post-strike, just to get the aircraft from, from Whiteman um into the country and, and then back. On top of that, um, we always want to be able to integrate with, with other airplanes and other assets. I mean we we have the capability to, to go in alone if we if we need to, but it's we perform better with support, particularly. A jamming support. Uh, we might need uh, or desire to have a support from from um, uh, um, from air to air fighters, particularly uh, other stealthy aircraft, other uh, uh, Raptor, uh, the F-22, um, and uh, we you know we do uh, a small amount of training with them, uh, not as not as much as we'd like to, um, but you know there are tactics that that we have in coordination with that community um, because. Uh, um, yeah, we don't we don't have a gun. We don't we can't shoot down other airplanes. We need right. need a um, uh, if the worst case scenario happens, and it's, you know it's unlikely that another an enemy aircraft would 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 detect us. But we're not invisible to the eyeball. You know we right. we um, especially if there's a um, a moon in the night or or a starry night. You know we, we make contrails so we can be seen. And so yeah, we want. Um, uh, uh support from uh, uh from uh air superiority air, air supremacy airplanes like the uh, like the raptor and then now um the f-35 wasn't flying when i was flying the b2 but but i imagine i i would imagine it's integrated now as well i don't know for a fact also um decoys um you know we'll want to integrate with those as well yeah. and um and and standoff weapons um you know we would like there there might be a key radar or a key threat that we want taken out even before we before we even get into the area and mm-hmm. so uh, we might have some standoff that might come from an air force asset it might even come from a naval asset but uh, but uh you know we want to integrate with standoff air, uh, standoff weapons as well
0: yeah do you uh last last question do you do you miss it when you uh see it at air shows or flyovers I, or things like that
1: I, I i do i mean i what i tell people is i i i miss the flying, I don't necessarily miss everything else that comes along with it because, it, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I I I I talk to people at air shows, like you mentioned, and um, and I, I do think that some people have the impression that all we do is just fly. We just walk out of the airplane, we fly, we land, and then we goof off the rest of the time, and and everything that goes along with a a flying career in the military, a very small percentage is actually flying. There's a lot of training a lot of studying, a lot of testing, a lot of ex- exercises, the exercise where you don't even get to fly. And so I don't necessarily miss everything that goes along with it, but yeah, I do miss the flying.
0: Excellent, well, Keith, thank you so, so much for taking time to join us this evening here on Social Flight Live, and uh, I, I appreciate it. It was wonderful meeting with, with you out uh, at Air Venture, and, uh, and it's just great to get this inside scoop and what it's really like having to do with the B-2 bomber and and your, your service. So I, I, I am grateful for your service and thanks for coming on the show as well.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. It was a real pleasure to meet you out at Oshkosh and I uh, uh, and, uh, just uh, appreciate it that you have me on your show. Thank you.
0: All right. Thanks. Have a wonderful evening. You too. Take care. And to all of you, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live. We'll be back next week hopefully without any audio issues with Dick Rutan and War Stories from Vietnam and the Cold War. Um, Really, really amazing stories. And uh, his book, The Next Five Minutes, in addition to talking about his round-the-world flight, goes into that. I would strongly encourage you to join us for this amazing story with Dick Rutan coming back on. And then on Tuesday, December 12th, Jason Morrison of Rebuild Rescue is here. Uh, Just a great YouTube star, does some wonderful things on YouTube, rebuilding abandoned aircraft, and he'll be here on the show. On Tuesday the 19th, we are here with Barry and Brian Schiff on the show, and then a very special holiday show, Tuesday, December 26th at 8 p.m. Don't miss this one. Robert Hayes, the star of Airplane the Movie, will be here joining us for a special holiday show. Until next time, I'm Jeff Simon for Social Flight blue skies.